The title for the sermon this morning was um, God's Invitation to a New Way of Being. And then when I was reading over, I thought, well, really, what it is, it's a reminder of God's invitation to a new way of being. I had two of our grandchildren at McDonald's last week for a treat. Well, the treat was really mine, not because I like McDonald's, but because I didn't have the hassle of, I want this or I want that or I want the next thing. I mean, my granny used to just put it down to me and I ate it. But while we were there, there was a young man being interviewed for a job and he was in the seat behind us and I was listening while he was being interviewed and they were asking the woman that was interviewing and was asking him all sorts of questions. But one that struck me as kind of strange was, where else have you applied for a job? And I thought, it's not really any her business. And that's not really anything to do with how he would perform in McDonald's if he got the job anyway. I didn't see the point of that, but she asked him about his hobbies, about what he did with his day. Was he an early riser? And then she talks to him about a shift from nine o'clock at night till two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> what would he bring to the team? It was all about his abilities. And I get that because I'm sure that they want to have the kind of people in their team who have the necessary qualifications and the right attitudes, um, whether gained by passing exams or by their lifestyle, in order that that team will function well. I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us, have been in a similar situation to that young man. Having applied for a position, we try our best to sell ourselves answering the questions with confidence that perhaps belies how we feel inside. Or, indeed, it might be that you answer the questions with a sure confidence that you're the right person for this position. Your CV carries all the evidence that's necessary and you're quite confident that you could do this job and you could do it well and they would do well to choose you. And then we come to Peter's letter this morning, his letter to the church, and we find that Peter is reminding these believers of what God has declared about them, about this new identity that has been stowed upon them, not because of anything they have done, but because of that cornerstone, because of Jesus, and because of God's great mercy. There's a word in the Old Testament that speaks of God's mercy, and that word is chesed. Now, it's hard to translate it. It's translated in numerous ways, loving kindness, faithfulness, mercy, all sorts of ways it's translated. But Michael Card in his book describes chesed like this. When the one from whom we have no right to expect anything gives us everything. When the one from whom we have no right to expect anything gives us everything. And I think that's a beautiful description of how God is with us. We have no right to expect anything from God. And yet look at what he has given us. Look at what he has done for us. God has done something in the people, his people. Um, and God proclaims something about them. They weren't subjected, and we weren't subjected to an intimidating interview to see whether we're worthy of such honour as has been bestowed upon us. It's all of grace. 
Do you know, there are none of us who can stand before God and say, well, I'm a good person, I've done this and I've done that, and yeah, that's fine. But we all have sin in our lives, and it's God's great mercy in forgiving us and drawing us into his kingdom. It's all of grace. Now, there is some dispute among scholars about who these Christians that Peter's writing to, who are they? Are they Jewish converts to the Messiah Jesus? Or are they Gentile converts? I'm not sure. I was saying um, to John earlier, I've read the commentaries and both sides put forward some convincing arguments. But what I'm sure of is this, that what has been declared about these believers who were the first to get this letter, and it was probably a circular, it probably went round about. I saw last week that Gordon was doing the map thing with all the different, different areas in Turkey where, where this would have gone. But I'm sure of this, that what is true of them is true of us, whether Jew or whether Gentile, it's true of us. Now, if he was writing, to, and this is just a wee thought that I had, if he's writing to Gentiles, the thing that struck me is, you know, lots of commentators would say, well, there are all these references to the Old Testament and the language, so he must be writing to Jews. So if he's writing to Gentiles who are converted, then it strikes me that that tells us that knowing the Old Testament scriptures is important because we trace the Messiah back. The cornerstone that was spoken of was spoken of in the Old Testament. So whether it's Jews or whether it's Gentiles, it has something to say to us. Because we gathered here today have received from God the same mercy and grace. We have received it in the same way as those early Christians did. We have received it through the sacrificial death and the resurrection of Jesus. We did not have to justify ourselves to God. Jesus did it all. And we, like those early Christians, also experienced suffering. Some of that suffering is because of our allegiance to Jesus. Now, I think that we get more sort of tormenting in this country rather than suffering because of our faith. But we know that we have brothers and sisters throughout the world who lose their lives because of their faith in Jesus. And some of the suffering and the pain that we feel goes on in our personal lives, and God is sufficient for that as well. And some of the suffering and pain is quite honestly because it's the consequences of our own behavior, our attitudes, our actions, and God's big enough for that as well. But the one thing that I notice is that, now I didn't know, I had this written before I knew that you were going to be singing We Are The Church, but the one thing I notice is that we are all in this together. You are, a, we are a chosen people. And we're all in it together, no, because we're all good people that have got together and decided that we've got a way to live that's going to be better. But we're all in it together because of Jesus. We are a chosen people. And Peter, as you heard from Gordon last week, would have been well known in the early church. He would have been, what, what was it he said, there's only one Simon Peter. When I went to university to train for ministry, um, the, one of the professors said to me, you know, he was asking where I was and what church I'd gone. And I was at St. Andrews in Bowness where Albert Bogle was the minister and many of you know Albert. Um, <clears throat> and he said to me, in this tone of voice, well, you know, Terry, there is only one Albert Bogle. 
And I says to him, well, you know David. He was another David. I says, well, you know David. There's only one Terry Taylor. <laughs> and I wasn't being facetious, but the, the early church would have looked on Peter as being chosen and special. And here's Peter's telling them, you are a chosen people. You see, somebody had said years ago to me, you know, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We're all, we all come to God the same way, and we all go away the same, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Now, we all have different gifts, but that's a different thing, and that's something for another time. We too, like those early Christians, have been chosen. And Eugene Peterson puts it like this, you are the ones chosen by God, taken from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. No need to fill in an application. No need to present your CV of all the good things you've done. No need to be nervous or anxious. Just accept what Jesus has done for us. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And be amazed. We were singing it. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I really do wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. And yet he took us and he changed us, didn't he? he? He sacrificed his son for our sake. And now he declares that we are a royal priesthood. Priests of the king. Now, when we think about priests, you know, I was thinking, well, as priests, as priests, what is it that we're to do? Well, the priests offered sacrifice. They offered sacrifices and they... they they offered on behalf of, of the nation. So we might say, but we don't offer sacrifices because Jesus has done that and his is the perfect sacrifice. And that's what we read when we look at Hebrews chapter 10. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. So what is it that is priests and sacrifices? How does that fit in with us and our calling as God's people? Well, Paul speaks of our lives as living sacrifices. When he wrote to the church in Rome, he said, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves a sacrifice wholly acceptable to God. Because of all that God has done for us, in our gratitude, our proper response is obedience. And obedience in itself is very often sacrificial. It's saying no to self, and it's saying yes to God. And we are, as believers, called to a sacrificial life. That may mean different things at different times. Sacrifice can be for the benefit of ourselves. It can be self-denial in order to grow in our faith and experience of God. Sacrifice can also be for the benefit of others, for the benefit of the body of Christ, for the benefit of those who haven't yet heard of God's love, the sacrificial life is a life of obedience. We are not offering a sacrifice to be forgiven. 
we are already forgiven. We live sacrificially because we are convinced that the way God calls us to live is the best way. We say no to self and yes to God in all manner of ways. Now, it might be something as simple as putting a guard over our mouth, denying ourselves the sweet taste of gossip, a sweetness that doesn't last. I often find, if I've been saying things about people behind their back that I wouldn't want to say to their face, it might taste awful sweet when I'm saying it, but after it, there's that horrible feeling that I wish I'd kept my mouth shut. It may be a financial sacrifice. Doing without that others might benefit. It might be spending time with the lonely. It might be growing patience. Patience is a great gift, and patience can be a real sacrifice. And I know particularly for people who are living with dementia and caring for people with dementia, do you know the greatest gift that we can give to people who are confused and people that are, don't understand what's going on round about them, the greatest gift we can give them is the gift of patience. And that can be a sacrifice. That can be a sacrifice. It may be that that sacrifice is responding to God's call to service. That means our own plans and desires are laid aside. Jim Elliot was a missionary to Ecuador and he was killed by the people that he was taking the good news of Jesus to. And this is what Jim Elliot had written in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Whatever we offer as sacrifice to God, the sacrificial life, it's not to be done grudgingly, and it's not to be done under compulsion, but it's done from knowing God's grace and mercy and responding to him. As Peter says in verse 3, we live differently now that we have tasted that the Lord is good. And again, that's another Old Testament reference, isn't it? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Our living as God's people is always a response to God's goodness, for we deserve nothing from him, but we have received everything. We live as God's people because we live according to what he has declared about us. We live in gratitude. One of the lecturers when I was at <coughs> Bible college was telling us of how his daughter had asked him, Dad, how do you become more spiritual? Now, Roy Kearsley was, he was one of these people that had a brain the size of a planet. And she, Dad, how do we become more spiritual? And he asked her, do you want the easy answer or do you want the difficult answer? I was glad she asked for the easy answer because he told us the way we become more spiritual is by becoming more grateful. And it's there in Romans chapter 1. You can go home and read it. The way we become more spiritual is that we become more grateful. And gratitude precedes the desire to live in obedience. Peter also tells us we are a holy nation. One nation. The church is gathered from all nations. And again, this was written before. I didn't know what David was going to be talking about, but we are the church all over the world. 
The church are God's, is God's holy nation. And we're, we're set apart. We live in the world, but we're set apart from the world. I think that, I don't know if C.S. Lewis had, had this in mind when he wrote this, but it kind of fits with it for me. C.S. Lewis said, <clears throat> If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And you know, this new identity that we have in Christ creates in us new desires. Belonging in the Christian community by the grace of God does that to us. It should be no surprise that we see the world differently from those who are not believers, for our eyes have been opened to the grace and the mercy of God. It's no surprise that we understand what Paul was speaking about in Romans when he spoke of creation groaning. There's something in us because we've tasted and we've seen that God is good and because we live with this hope and because we look to a future that's just wonderful, go away and read Revelation 21. We live with that and so there's something that in us groans for that coming, that, that time of that fullness of God's kingdom, that time that death has, should not have any, fe- we should have no fear of death. Death takes us into that place where we experience God in all his fullness and we leave behind the pain and the sorrows of this world. The other thing <coughs> that, that, um, that Peter calls us or tells us that we're God's special possession. Excuse me. <coughs> God's special possession. I'm smiling because I'm remembering our three-year-old granddaughter <coughs> asking her granddad, she was only three, granddad, am I your best darling? So let me take a vote. What's the answer to that? What's the answer to that? I told you, Graham. And Graham told her, well, really, Leila, Granny's my best darling. But Leila fell out with me. Because she really wanted to know that she was so very special to her granddad. And she is just no special as me. But, but, but isn't it wonderful to know that we're special to people? But even when we feel we're no special to people, we can be assured of this, that we are special to God. We're special to him because he loves us. We're special to him because he has redeemed us. We are the ones who, because of God's gift of salvation, and because we've accepted it, belong to him. And this specialness isn't about anything that we have in and of ourselves. You're special because God has loved you. This specialness is because he has redeemed us and we belong to us. All that Peter is reminding these Christians of is to bring them to the place where in and out of the gratitude for all that God has done for them and is doing in them, that they will declare the praises of God who called them out of darkness. It's a reminder to them 
that once they weren't a people, but now they are a people. It's a reminder to them that once they lived a certain way, now they live a different way out of gratitude for what God has done. A friend of mine used to sing a a very old hymn years ago in church, and I'm going to close just with a verse from that. I'm not singing it, by the way. (laughs) Please do know. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know, Spirit sent from Christ above, thou dost witness it is so. O this full and precious peace from his presence all divine, in a love that cannot cease, I am his and he is mine. Amen.